0: And you are listening to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today, I am joined by Dr. Martin Marin, who's having some technical difficulties of his own with internet today. So we're going to try to muddle through today's podcast and hope we can bring you some information about newly diagnosed people with HCM and those with HCM who are experiencing changing symptoms or a change in situation and. Focusing on how to adjust the sales to live with your new situation. Um, Good morning, Marty. Can you hear me now?
1: I can. Good morning.
0: Good morning. So you've seen a couple of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in your life, and some of them are newly diagnosed. And we know that the first two years of diagnosis is a tricky time for somebody with HCM. So, what are your first words of wisdom when somebody's been diagnosed and they've got that deer in the head look? How do you how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the way we deal with that is that we start out by telling patients that this is a disease that today and 2022, with all the potential options that we have for therapies that can be very well treated, um, and that because of that, for the vast majority of patients, normal life expectancy related to HCM is is, is the reality. And in addition to that, we also believe we can achieve excellent quality of life you know, for the vast majority of patients. So we start out with a very positive, but very true reassuring message about the disease today.
0: So I would agree that for the vast majority of individuals who get diagnosed, um, we can give a lot of reassurance. It is not something anybody wants to hear. Right. I often welcome people to the club that they never wanted to join right. and invite them in saying it's going to be a long road. We're in this as a marathon, not a sprint. And things can change over time. And you just have to keep in touch with your position, your team, your community and take it one day at a time and not try to get too far ahead of yourself. Um, I a normal first call for us on a newly diagnosed is, well, what is going to happen? and I'd like to talk for a moment about some of the unpredictability in progression or lack of progression in some patients. So I'll ask it this way. Does everybody follow the same exact course with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy?
1: No, no, there's certainly, you know, there's certainly different pathways that patients can go down with this disease. There's no question about that. Even patients within the same family that have the same mutation, there can be different courses that those related family members can take as well. So there is what we call, you know, a certain degree of heterogeneity differences in, in terms of what happens to patients over time, and certainly how these hearts look between patients as well with respect to the pattern and distribution of hypertrophy. I think though that you know, in this is probably where you're going, and 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 what, and let me just address this then. Kind of is that you know one of the terms we hear a lot, and we kind of unpack with patients is progression, progression. And you know that term you know has to sort of really be defined in a certain way here and, and we spend for that reason, a fair amount of time with patients kind of, as I said, unpacking that that term because people's perception of that may be different than the actual reality of what that term really for least for the most for the most patients means. So for example, I think there's an idea that patients come to the visit with that they are destined to have progression in terms of, for example, the heart becoming thicker and thicker and thicker to the point that they're not going to be able to get out of bed. It's, you know, that kind of situation. And I think we of course know that that's not true for the vast majority of patients. Wall thickness is generally stated the same most of the time throughout life. Other things can change and that's where the progression Uh, definition really sort of applies. So for example, in most cases, progression refers in this disease to patients with HCM that have outflow tract obstruction will have over time evidence of some progression in terms of how they feel, more limitation over time related to the high pressures. Wall thicknesses haven't changed. Usually the pressures are still the same. It's the ability of the heart to compensate or the body to compensate for those high pressures that changes that result in progression. Okay. Now, just before you, before we, you know, kind of open that up, you know, obviously there can be progression though in a small number of patients. Otherwise, for example, with non-obstructive HCM that can progress and can have changes to the heart structure and function, okay, that result in symptoms too. That's the, you know, I'm referring most 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 predominantly to the HCM patients that develop worsening pump function or what we call systolic dysfunction. So that's another element of the progression, but uncommon in general, okay? So I think we have to really, and we spent when we're talking to patients particularly for that initial visit, we're really trying to clarify for them a lot of these misconceptions or misinterpretations of what really the future, may or may not be about for them.
0: So all excellent points. So let's
1: dive in. Okay.
0: You've got, typically people come to us and say, well, when do I need surgery? And, and you're trying to help them understand that every anatomy is a little bit different. They need to understand whether they're obstructed or not obstructed. First and foremost, to understand which path of treatments might be available to them. Right. So not everybody gets a myectomy. Not everybody needs septal reduction therapy at all. Not everybody needs an implantable defibrillator. Not everybody needs the same medication. So this is where understanding your disease and getting to high level center of excellence care really matters and we talk about that a lot here. But I wanna hear from you why it matters so much to truly understand your own anatomy and what you're facing at that moment And then start to think about what might come, but how far down the path should somebody be thinking? So how do we start to to really get a good understanding of where we are and where we might be going?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the, the way we do that is we, you know, we put together a lot of information that we have available to us today in terms of testing for patients that, kind of gets assembled together for that visit, for these initial visits that we you know, we, we put a lot of weight on a number of different aspects of those test results in those HCM patients to help us to determine, for example, what that particular patient may be faced with, what pathway, for example, they could be faced with as they go forward in life with HCM. Is this a patient that's more likely to develop Limiting symptoms over time. Is it a patient that's more likely to develop an abnormal rhythm from the bottom chamber? Is it a patient that's more likely to develop symptoms related to atrial fibrillation? So there's a lot of tests. There's a lot of um, interpretation of the tests, and th- that that it really informs us in terms of how we talk to patients about that. That's particularly helpful. Those those include are not limited to, but include, for example, being and probably one of the most important at the top of the list would be. To, to accurately and reliably determine if a patient has outflow tract obstruction or not. That's always the first, I mean, in a way, almost the first thing we do. Because if you don't put a patient in the correct category there, then it becomes very difficult to do two things define their natural history, what could happen to them over time, and also treatment options if they become symptomatic. And then there are many other variables too. For example, how thick the heart is can help us inform that. Um, for example, how much scarring a patient may have on MRI, how big other chambers of the heart may be, like the left atrium, because that goes to atrial fibrillation. So we put all the family histories really important. Okay, If there's a family, for example, if there's a family history of multiple family members, I just had a patient yesterday like this, had multiple family members who had gone into uh, a burned out phase of HCM. And we know when you've got multiple family members that have... HCM, where the pump function starts to decrease and they get heart failure, other family members are at risk for that too, in a very important way. So family history, what's happened to other patients. And of course, sometimes the mutation can be helpful in, 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 in providing that in, in information about uh, natural history. So a lot of different things get put together for that conversation to address those points that you were talking about, about how we can tell patients what the future may be for them.
0: So that's the newly diagnosed. And then there's another group of people I want to spend a few minutes on today. And that is some of us old timers in HCM, right? So you've been diagnosed 10, 15 years. You think you got it all figured out because you went through those first two years. You understood where you were, but then something changes. Uh, And I'll take this one a little personally and we got to go back in time a bit, but there was a time I remember the look on somebody's face very, very specifically when I went to get checked out and have my annual exam with my HCM team. And the physician walked in the room with my echocardiogram reports and he looked like he had seen a ghost (laughs) and had to have a conversation with me that my ejection fraction didn't look so good and things have changed. And this was after living with HCM for probably 30 years at that point. Yeah, and everything changed. I right. told this doctor not to say the T word to me, uh, because I was not ready to hear that, and I wasn't ready to do anything else about it because I still felt okay. Right. Um, do you remember that moment?
1: I don't think I'll forget it. How about that? <laughs> remember it like it was yesterday. Yes.
0: So we changed the meds. Right. I went into a very deep state of denial that this is it'll get better, um, it didn't get better. Um, but it was a change, it was a shift. I, I thought I knew where I was going and I I wasn't going there anymore. And it didn't happen the next day. It took six years from that first conversation to another conversation that occurred, the first one was I think in a June or July of like 2011. And then there were, there were September, 2016 we're in a hospital room now. And you're looking at me like, I literally have nothing else in the toolbox for you. Am I allowed to say the T word now? And I said, we can say the T word now and you shift again. So you've walked a lot of people through this change, whether it's you're now obstructed and you need surgery or your risk factors have changed. And now you need an ICD or it's time for a transplant. How do you help patients prepare for that shift?
1: Well, I think it depends Also, it depends a little bit on, you know, what that shift, you know, is in a way. I mean, because these are, you, you brought up a number of different shifts that could occur in ATM. And again, I want to emphasize again, because I really believe this to be absolutely true. It's not just a belief, it's also supported by studies where, you know, there, the vast majority, the majority, again, not everybody, but the majority of patients with this disease Will go through life having a very stable course. In fact, very few, very many of which, whom of those patients, very few require anything to be done in terms of therapy. Okay? Just to be clear, but yes, there are patients, and you certainly were one of them, where important changes related to HCM occurred. Now, how we prepare patients for that again depends on the change. I mean, for example, um, if the change is worsening shortness of breath and decreased exercise tolerance over the last two or three years because they are now beginning not to tolerate the high pressures from obstruction. You know, that's a change that we all recognize is not good and frustrates patients. But on the other hand, we also say to those patients, look, not good but the other the silver lining here is there is a very there are very good and there are multiple now treatment options that can reverse this where there are many diseases where when you get to a certain point there's nothing available that's not the case here so there's a lot of try to create some some form of optimism you know despite the change and then there are other changes like you went through that are more challenging because the you know the therapies may not be quite as good as myectomy or alcohol ablation uh, for which we spend more time taking patients through the potential scenarios of what could occur here that may or may not be as good as we hope, You know, for example. And so I think the answer is that it, it really is an individual situation where we have to sort of um, craft our discussions based on what that change really is and what the implications may be for that change, okay? And and that's really important because there are very different, okay, obstruction symptoms, very different than dropping your EF and going into the end stage and very different from atrial fibrillation symptoms, which increase, which can be treated with ablation. So there's way different. So that's why I think, you know, it's very, that's again, another reason why going to centers of excellence is so important here because the level of those conversations and the context behind them and having patients really understand the implications of those changes, those very specific changes for HCM, can, ha- can it be a very different conversation if it's in an HCM center versus perhaps a non-HCM expert center?
0: So the shift of yeah. disease, um, the change in the symptom. The awareness of palpitations,
1: the yep.
0: exacerbation and shortness of breath. Pretty much everything we have on the checklist of symptoms, as they get worse, there's a correction. There's an option. There's another tool in the toolbox to pull out and say, let's try this. Right. And sometimes that can be frustrating to patients. They just want the thing, the fix, and be done with it. But life's not that, that easy. It's a little bit more complicated. So I think patients need to have some patience and be really good communicators on what they're feeling and what their goals are. And physicians need to be clear about what real expectations should be and can be based on this therapy. Um, Example, many years ago, A lot of people went into myectomies thinking that they were cured when they came out of a myectomy have unrealistic expectations. Right. So we take a lot of time now ahead of time to say a myectomy is not a cure. You're getting rid of obstruction.
1: Right.
0: But you're going to get rid of the symptoms that are related to obstruction and you're going to feel better. Uh, Same with alcohol ablation. Somebody asked me how much better they would feel with their ICD. I'm like, you're not going to feel any different with your ICD. You're just going to be protected. It's not meant for symptom management. So understanding what your symptoms are, communicating them well to your chosen care team and making sure your care team is able to understand it. Um, And then you can set realistic expectations. That doesn't mean you're always going to get what you want as a patient. And the doctor may not always get the result that they want, but we can have a good conversation and have a meeting of the minds and understand what we're both trying to achieve. Um, But psychologically, that's challenging on all sides. And I've been leaning into letting patients have a sense of the other side of this too, right? So you're giving information as a healthcare provider and you're trying to help them feel better and the patient wants to feel better, but sometimes you can only go so far and we can't make it hundred percent better, but we can improve quality of life and we can improve how we cope with that. And I think that's a critical point that patients need to understand you're trying to help, but they need, you need the information from them so that you can be most effective in helping. Right. Are there any tips that you can give to patients about how they should be communicating what they're feeling to make sure that you're understanding them well? As they're changing You know the symptoms, I had a bad habit of saying, I'm fine. I'm fine because I didn't want to bother anybody with my symptoms. Probably not a good idea. Probably almost got myself into trouble doing that. So how should patients communicate their symptoms to you?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't know if there's one right answer to that and there may be different strategies that different people can take there. I mean, I, I, I you know, what I've done and is really try to establish a relationship even with that initial visit with the patient in which given the, the, the ability to, to provide that patient the kind of, um, you know, that foundation of understanding of their disease, what this change may mean, the treatment option, everything, we build a hopefully a rapport a relationship that then creates a certain element of trust between them and us that will allow uh, that relationship to foster going forward in terms of you know, emphasizing to them that we really do want to know, you know, if they do have feelings that reflect a change beyond what we're hearing today as they go forward. So, and we try to, we try to put that in context. We try to describe what that may mean. If you feel you're more out of breath with less stares, if you're feeling more tired with your daily activities than you were right now, if you're feeling lightheaded. And so we put it in context and say, if that happens, Please, we want to know about that. And, you know, when it happens, not six months later, if you pass out, we want to know immediately about that. And so we try to put that kind of, kind of, you know, communication that's in the background of the trust between them and us. And that, I think, will help helps facilitate uh, a, a, a kind of a relationship where patients are, I think, more willing to reach out to us when those changes do occur if they do occur and also allowing um you know i mean i've always personally felt strong about you know certain aspects of lines of communication you know that that has to be easy if patients feel it's difficult to get hold of their provider they're less likely to probably reach out to us so you know we've got all kinds of channels today for that to happen but you know email Um, you know, has always worked really well. Patients can quickly get on email and reach out to us. So I think the the way patients feel that they can reach us is important as well, because if they get frustrated with that, they're less likely to tell us about a change. So those are, you know, those are some of the things, I guess, kind of reflecting back on that question that we've fallen back on to try to help in that area.
0: So we have a question or comment. Do we think there'll be some type of scale developed that's better focused on HCM, like a pain scale, um, but maybe more specific than New York Heart Association class that patients can understand when they're shifting in their symptoms and what's important?
1: Yeah, great question. It's a really, really good question. Um, And you know what, It's, it's just so right on the mark in terms of, you know, what a lot of us in HCM as expert physicians have been talking about over the last couple of years. So you hit on an incredibly important area of really active research right now because you're absolutely correct. Uh, The NYHA designation, we all agree, isn't really sufficient to reflect the symptom burden reliably enough and accurately enough in this disease. It was never developed for HCM, by the way. It's been applied to this disease because it's so common in other forms of heart failure, but it doesn't really work well. So you're absolutely correct. We need a better tool, is what we call it, a patient-reported tool that reflects longitudinally, you know, chronically, the symptom burden and changes that patients are really experiencing here related to their HCM. And I could just tell you that there's a lot of work going on in that right now. And I'll also tell you that that may in fact be, the answer to that may also be using other technologies besides questionnaires to to get to the answer to that, which may mean, for example, um, there's a lot of obviously uh, watches and and patient uh, centric tools, right? That give us a lot of data about heart rate, about steps, about oxygen saturation, all kinds of information Mm -hmm. that may, if we can track it the right way, reflect or even predict changes.
0: I found an old article and I've been doing a little bit of research into um, different methods of building resilience and helping people with their mental health as well as their physical health. Found an old article from Bill McKenna that I really think it's kind of interesting about heart rate variability in HCM. And there's some meditation techniques that focus on heart rate variability. And if you can work on bringing that heart rate variability number down, it brings a calmer homostasis to the body and mentally people feel better. But there is some data from the early 90s that the more erratic your heart rate variability is, the more progression you might see. So there might be some tools that you're wearing that we might be able to figure out how to help people understand where they're at and even give them some tools to maybe reverse some of the negative effects of life with HCM.
1: Absolutely.
0: I think those are really cool concepts and they're easy and they're cheap and they might make a big difference. So stay tuned. I'm going to run a class on that in a discussion group and we're going to see... some some demos on that. Additionally, some of the work that we're doing in the Medical Affairs Committee and some of the work we're doing internally here at the HCMA to better organize the data that we have here about the HCM experience from the patient point of view, I'd love to see a way to be able to take that data and the patient true experience in the outside world, not the clinical world, and marry it with the clinical information in such a way that we might be able to come up with something much more predictable and accurate about the the burden of disease with HCM. And when people are shifting in their symptoms and then they have to adjust those sales to get a new med, do a procedure, et cetera, that they can kind of see it coming and they can kind of prepare themselves for the decisions that they're going to have to make six months, a year down the road. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Of course, we all want to move faster and have more answers tomorrow, but not really. Um, getting there yet. Um, So
1: just to add add one thing on that, you know, because it, you know, because I think it was a great question. And I think, uh, you know, just to expand on that one other second, you know, there's um, a lot of effort as well going into trying to develop these tools to help us as well to judge better, perhaps new therapies in HCM. Okay. So let me just give you an example, you know, for patients with HCM that have the non-obstructive form, you know, we feel that the NYHA and also, for example, even cardiopulmonary exercise testing, there are a lot of limitations to those metrics in terms of reflecting really well the true symptom burden related to non-obstructive HCM. But yet on the other hand, those are the only two tests that are being used to judge the effectiveness of new therapies because right now we don't have yet an HCN specific symptom tool okay so those are so important that we do develop because they could then be integrated into clinical trials to give us a better idea whether or not these new therapies are actually doing something really important for the patients that's better reflected than NYHA class.
0: So excellent point. And let me just dive into some regulatory kind of comment here. Yep. So when we did our patient-focused drug development meeting with the FDA back in June of 2020, um, we brought up to the FDA directly that NYHA class doesn't really speak to
1: us. Right. And then
0: the FDA came back to us and said, but we don't have another tool develop another tool and we can use another tool once it's been validated. But validating a tool in something as variable as HCM symptoms is challenging. And you know, challenge heard, challenge taken, and it's time for us to really develop that out because we know, and we, we did a survey on this um, not too long ago and just tried to get an understanding if the masses of patients were experiencing the same thing that we thought they were. On a good day, how do you feel on the New York Art Association class? On an average day, how do you feel? And on a bad day, how do you feel? And there were different answers for all of them. Like on a good day, I can do anything I want. On a bad day, I might be on the couch all day, unable to walk across the house. And on an average day, I get winded walking upstairs. So that they were a one, a three plus and a two, and it's the same person. So we've proven that it doesn't work so well. And we need better tools because clinical trials are not going to be as meaningful as they could be. Um, somebody's just asked about like why aren't we talking about camzio's? So there's a new medication on the on the horizon or here now, and other ones coming. It is a tool in the toolbox, like any other tool. Uh, I know everybody thinks it's a special tool and it's it's got more meaning. It is the first time we have a labeled indication drug specifically for us. So there it's special, but again, it's just another treatment option that is available to some people right now based upon their clinical appearance and their symptoms. And it shouldn't be looked at any differently than any other tool that we have in the toolbox, in my opinion. Marty, do you want to comment on that?
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Is that, you know, it's a, a very, you know, we're all enthusiastic about the idea that we have now a new treatment option, um, medical treatment option for at least at this point for symptomatic obstructive ATM. It's not yet, um, been shown to have benefit in non obstructives although there's trials going on looking at that, but we all agree. It's a great idea that we have now another treatment option, but that's what it is at the moment. It's another treatment option. It, it, it gives patients additional options to achieve the goals that we've been talking about, which is feeling better. Okay. We don't yet know that if you take CAMZIOS, you're gonna, you know, that it's a cure for HCM, that it's going to change the heart in a way that will get rid of the increased wall thickness and the scarring. We don't know that yet. We know what it can, not we know we have some idea of what it otherwise it can do, which is lower the pressures from the obstruction very effectively. Um, but you know, we've got to put that, what we know we can do at the moment into context. Okay. And in context, it does represent it right now, as you just said, a very important additional tool in the medical, in the medical therapy toolbox.
0: And there's going to be others coming. Affie Campden trials are underway. There's going to be a non-obstructed trial coming up as well. So we're still learning. And I know everybody's excited about it and they think it's going to be the answer. Well, I've been around a while and I've seen a lot of the answers, and they're never the answer. They're an answer for some and they're not for others. Uh, I can go back to the early 90s, dual chamber pacing. Everybody's going to get a dual chamber pacemaker. It was going to cure HCM. Seriously, that's what we were told in the early 90s. Then it was alcohol ablation in the late 90s. And then, well, everybody's just going to get an ICD and that's all you need. There's tools, people. There's lots and lots and lots of tools. And knowing which one is appropriate for you is critical to go over with somebody who truly understands HCM. I'll be a little bit critical on the REMS program right now. I think too many people are in. I think too many people are prescribing cams That's my opinion. That's Lisa's opinion, not HCMA's opinion. That's mine. Because physicians who don't see a lot of HCM want to give the new drug out, but they don't understand the idiosyncrasies of HCM to the depths of somebody like Marty Marin and his team and other centers of excellence. So if you're gonna try a drug that's new to market or a disease that's complicated, please get expert opinion, not just the local doc who took a class and he thinks he understands how to use this drug in this very complicated disease. Give yourself the advantage of having a specialist involved in your care. I will step off my soapbox on that one. Any comments on that, Marty?
1: No, just other than, you know, you know defining what it is that people think you know the, you know you just said is, is it right that people think canzios is it you know i, mean, I think we have to the, the question really comes down to what are we what are what are what are people defining as it you know for example there are many patients that i see that have had successful surgical myectomies 20 years ago that have been asymptomatic since surgery and have a life that is incredible now, um, and would consider that operation to be it. They, for them, for that patient, it was it. You know, I mean, they they have felt that that, in fact, represented. And I've had patients tell me this, a cure for their disease. So you know, again, it, it, you know, but for others, you know, it, that wasn't quite the case. You know, and so I think we have to, you know, it comes down ultimately at the moment to how you want to define what it is you want out of therapy? That's really the question at the moment. And and I think that's an evolving thing right now with the introduction of Kamsayas.
0: So in our patient journal that we send out to members and we send them out to centers, we ask you to document your symptoms. We ask, you know, we give you the tools to kind of think this through and be logical about what are your goals? What do you want to do? Um, One of my favorite expressions and Quote from a poem from Mary Oliver. Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. You get this vessel to do this life thing in, right? It doesn't always work the way we want it to. And we have to do things. Sometimes we wish we didn't have to do. But what are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? Have those conversations with your healthcare provider and see what is possible. And have realistic expectations. And at the end of the day, okay, my realistic expectation was I need it, I'm the 5% that had to go to transplant. I'm the rare, I'm not the common. I'm much, I mean, 5% of all of us, it's rare, but it's a path. It's not a path that everybody wants to take. But if it's the only path you have, it starts to look pretty damn good. So there's paths and you can get through it, I guess is my my key point there. No matter what HCM throws at you, we pretty much have ways of handling it. Unfortunately, we can't fix everything all the time, but we can really do our best to get in front of it. So that's the ultimate hope there. So somebody has asked a question that is a little off topic, but I'm gonna dive into it. Um, They're questioning the new Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Society, which Marty and I are both board members on. And they've asked, well, what is that about? Well, we're all still trying to figure out exactly what that's all about. But it's the professional arm of HCM community coming together to try to solve more problems is the way I see it. And we're working on strategies and mission and all of those interesting things that societies do. Um, so we don't have a lot to share yet, but that's pretty much what it's all about. Marty, did you want to comment on that?
1: No, I think you said it well. I mean, I think that's certainly where we are right now. That it's brand new and we haven't even really had an even a first introductory you know, meeting yet, in fact, which is at least scheduled for September. So your over, overarching description is, is, I think, what has been proposed as the goal, um, but it's brand new. So it'll evolve as we go forward. Uh, and it's just at the beginning.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about it behind the scenes for probably two years. And HCMA will work in partnership with the society um, on a number of different issues. And you'll just start seeing their logo appear on, on more things as we progress. And as we define what the society will and will not do, and it, it takes a lot of different points of view to accomplish the tasks that we need to accomplish as a community. So we can do so much as the patient organization. Then there'll be a professional organization. We'll, we'll join forces on projects. We'll do our own projects. So it'll it's, it's good. It's, it's a positive step. And we're happy to be on the, on the team to facilitate more change in different ways. So pivoting for a second back to topic, Um, and that is, you know, changing symptoms, changing times and adjusting the sales. I wanna take a few minutes and talk about life adjustments that need to be made due to a diagnosis of HCM. And I want to dispel some myths. Dr. Marin, upon diagnosis, should a patient with HCM stop doing everything fun in the world and sit in a chair and watch bad TV all day?
1: God, no. Um, Right. Which, you know, that would be a mistake. Of course, we, as we usually say, that is something what we call trading one disease potentially for another, which is absolutely what we don't want to do. So that's another, you know, this is another part of the conversation, you know, with patients that's so important in terms of putting the right context and, 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 and right information, you know, to them and messaging in the right way. There's so many misconceptions about a lot of this, but particularly this aspect, as you just said, and it's been very frustrating, as you kind of alluded to, uh, for us over the years. Because when we hear things that are just so different than what is the reality or the truth or the data supports, then you know it just we just feel that patients are 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 despite everything that we're doing, all of our efforts are still seem to be getting the wrong messaging here um, which is very frustrating. So here, you know, the deal, you know, the deal is that, you know, we want patients with atm to remain, you know, active, you know, we, we, we describe it as mild to moderate, you know, recreational level activities permissible in this disease. We want patients to stay balanced physically. And of course, mentally, um, the, the concern, if, if you want to put it that way, has to more do, if anything, with really vigorous, vigorous, physical activities, you know, and that's been, you know, equated to sort of competitive sports like activities or competitive sports where, you know, there are unique conditions and and demands that are placed upon individuals in those circumstances in terms of physical uh, requirements that can potentially increase a rhythmic risk. But that's, but that's very vigorous competitive like sports, you know, that has for some reason, in some instances, in a lot of instances been, you been know, expanded to mean that patients have to sit on the couch and never get up, okay? We've never said that. That's never been part of the guidelines. Um, and so that's, uh, that's something that we really wanna make sure is conveyed in the right way to patients.
0: So we talked a couple months back with Seth and you can go back and listen to oh. an old podcast on Seth. Right. Um, Seth was a hockey player. Um, he, he, he lived for hockey and he actually had a cardiac arrest on the ice and he had to figure out his life goals and his reality of being at risk. So he downgraded his activity in hockey and became a referee. And then he tried to push the limits and he went to a higher level of refereeing and it got a little intense and he had another event and he figured out now he's going to take it down a few notches. Doesn't mean he can't play hockey or he can't participate in the sport in any level as a ref or whatever, but he, he made some adjustments and took the information shared with him from his physician, took his life expectations and he put it together and he's like, this is what I'm going to do now. And a lot of people do that. You choose the level of activity you can do. I have somebody just posted on that Facebook group that they did a triathlon after their myectomy um, because that was their choice. They're an adult, they made that choice and that's what they wanted to do. Is it right for everybody? Probably not, but you can do things, but you have to understand the risks and the benefits. And I put an asterisk on that saying that's for adults, children are a different story. Um, And competitive athletics in children does get a little dicey. And there's some some movement there in terms of better recommendations that I think we're moving towards. Do you want to comment at all about kids and athletics?
1: About about which part?
0: Kids, adolescents, and competitive athletics.
1: Well, you know, you know, I think it's a big conversation in some ways, but you know, essentially, it's a conversation that's so important to have with again an expert ATM provider. Um, you know, because there are a lot of nuances here that are important to, to recognize and to, to to have discussions with patients about. But you know, in general, I think um, you know we we you know first of all we still feel that adolescents with HCM you know who 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 want to participate in competitive sports, most competitive sports, um, that that's an increased risk situation. Okay, um, and potentially therefore putting that patient at a risk for a potentially life-threatening event. Um, And so we feel strongly that because that we, we do our best to try to create different avenues, as we were just saying, different pathways that patients could maybe change that would still allow them to be involved and active, but not at that level, okay? that's a very complicated situation and it very involves you know, often parents and, and, and really crafting individual kinds of discussions because it, it, it's, 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 it's different for each person. But we try to explore alternative ways that can still potentially lead to a patient feeling like they can, can, can be active, but not putting themselves at risk.
0: Okay, so we've, we've done podcasts on that before, and you can go back and listen to some old content there. Uh, I want to address one comment, and then I've got a couple of announcements before yeah. we wrap for today. Um, so somebody asked about long-distance flight. Should patients with HCM take any precautions when they're traveling?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing there is stay hydrated, Uh, you know, as everybody, you know, kind of appreciates, you know, these are big transitions, going to the airport, waiting, and then getting on the airplane, these long flights at altitude. you know, patients get dehydrated very easily, and you got to stay up with your, you know, your fluid, that's one, two, you got to get rest, and three, you got to kind walk around you gotta you know you gotta be mobile and not sit in the seat for a 12 hour flight or whatever it may be you gotta get up walk around as much as you can staying hydrated and getting rest um and essentially listening to your body um and and modifying if you need to in some way so those are your i mean those are the general i think guidelines that we usually talk about when patients ask about that i don't know if there's something i'm missing that comes to your mind
0: uh, no, I think those are all great points. Um, you need, you need rest. You need rest when you get to your destination. So if you're going for a week vacation, yeah. try to add a day or two on just so that as soon as you get there, you can rest up and you can enjoy your vacation. Don't fly and then try to do a tour of Rome in the same day. You're going to not have the good reaction on day three. You're going to be missing whatever activity you had planned that day. So pace yourself, um, stay hydrated, Um it, depending upon where you are in heart failure, you may want to add a little bit of extra salt before you travel to help you retain a little bit of fluid when you're up. That was what I did for many years. Um, but then you need to make sure you get that sodium back out. So that that's the only tips that I would give that I've experienced. Um, it's really unnerving to have palpitations while flying. I will tell you that. Um, but remember that most, most airplanes today carry AEDs and... Um, they they're there to support you as well and hopefully yeah. you have an emergency there um somebody asked why would you walk around on the flight now we're not talking about an hour or three hour flight we're talking about just keeping your your body moving while you're flying and like 12 13 hours of sitting is just not good you want to talk about why marty
1: well yeah i mean i think the the main concern that we're sort of focused on when we say that and i think that was a good question because i don't think You know it doesn't make sense unless you put some context to it so so i think what we're really concerned about is that if you sit too long particularly you know older patients with heart disease like atm can be at a greater risk for example of blood clots forming in the legs just based on just the blood pooling in the legs in a sedentary or sitting position for a long time and if blood clot forms in the veins in the in the legs you know there's a possibility that then Uh, It could break off and trap up and lodge in the lungs in what's called a pulmonary embolism. That's a blood clot in the lungs, which nobody wants to have because that compromises, um, sometimes in a significant way, patient's ability to breathe and oxygenation. So that's that's a very important issue. And so by getting up and being mobile and walking around, you decrease significantly the risk of that kind of blood clot forming on a long flight.
0: And that's a good piece of advice for everybody. Everybody should do everybody, that. Everybody. Right? Yeah. And if there's a lot of turbulence, roll, roll your ankles, march your feet up and down, just kind of move your body a little bit. And it's just good tips. Um, okay, so coming up next Thursday, the Big Hearted Warrior Tour is having a special session on genetics. Um, we have some interesting speakers, including uh, Dr. Carolyn Ho, uh, Dr. Farhan Ahmad and Dr. Eric Eric. Um, Eric. It's, Eric. it's
1: Eric. Adler.
0: Adler. <laughs> Eric, you just lost your last name. Eric Adler. And we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Dannon's disease, which is an HCM spectrum disorder, and the genetic therapies that have been de- developed and are in trial right now, as well as some potential future genetic therapies that might be possible for HCM in the future. So we want everybody to be prepared for what's coming down the pipe. And we're going to talk a little bit deeper about what different mutations are, aren't, and who might be a good candidate for considering clinical trials when they come up in the next year to three years. So you'll learn more on Thursday night, so please come join us. Um, And we are going to be podcasting later this month with some of our discussion group moderators and leaders and talking about what we've learned over the past two years of HCMA discussion groups and where we're taking the program next and additional features that we'll be adding there. So um, I really thank you all for joining us. Marty, thanks again for being on Tales from the Heart. We always enjoy having good conversations with you about all aspects of HCM. And um, I think we're done for today
1: have a good rest of the summer. I think we'll catch it up again in September. Always great to join you. And uh, always appreciate the chance to, to talk about these topics, too. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Marty. You have a great day. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4HCM.org. Become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free, and you can find them at 4HCM.org or at TheHCMAcademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4HCM.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Austin Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4HCM.org, Monday through Friday, almost every day you can find a discussion group. Whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, pre screening your family, there's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups, moderated by a peer volunteer, and you can sign up in advance at 4HCM.org. Just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4HCM.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4HCM.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.